Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great privilege, great joy to study your word. We pray that you would be with us, help us understand, enlighten our minds, uh, open our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so, um, what is predestination? Uh, and every week I, I said that uh, I hope to make it a freestanding class, um, so you don't need to have necessarily attended each one prior before. And uh, I want to go through the definition again and then give you a uh, biblical support for it. And each week I want to, there to be different biblical supports. And uh, as I've been saying, um, the Bible uh, talks incessant. I mean, it's all over the Bible, this doctrine of predestination, right? And so what is predestination? It's that our salvation ultimately depends on God's choice, not our choice, right? Our choice is a secondary choice. It's a response choice. It's an echo of his first choice. So God first chooses us so that he enables us, therefore, to choose him or believe in him. And so uh, predestination works like this. Let me... And again, predestination is the broader term. There's the two subsidiary concepts, which is election and reprobation, which God saves, uh, chooses some for salvation and God chooses some for damnation. But um, God changes... Our hearts. Okay, and this has to happen prior to our our faith. Okay, so this can only happen because first God, as we said, uh, God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Um, in theology, this is called regeneration. Regeneration simply means to be made alive again. So our hearts are dead, and then God vivifies, uh, awakens our hearts. So where do we see that in the Bible? Acts 16. Um, can I have Gail read that for us? This is the city of Philippi. So Paul goes and he's preaching the gospel in Philippi. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Yeah, and if you read on in the account in Acts, uh, she goes on to accept the gospel. She becomes baptized, her and her, her household. And how did that happen? Because many, many people hear Paul, but only some accept the gospel and believe. Why, why Paul, why Lydia and not, other, and not others? And the answer is right there, because the Lord opened her heart, right? Uh, so God acts first, he, there'll be more than enough. Um, God acts first. He opens Lydia's heart. And because God's Spirit intervenes, right? You know, a lot of people say, well, what about our free will? Well, in a sense, God violates our free will. And praise God that He does that. Why should He respect our free will? Do we say to God, respect my free will, let me go to hell? No, please, God, violate my free will. Open my heart. Give me a heart transformation that I could see you and love you. Um, and so ultimately it depends then, therefore, on God and not on us. Uh, let me read Romans 9. Romans 9 is perhaps the most uh, blunt, the most explicit of all the passages in the Bible that talks about election because it makes it so clear, almost in a way that offends us deeply. Let me read it for you guys. Romans 9. When Rebecca, this is one of the, uh, we're going back to the patriarchs, right? we're going back to the story of Genesis. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
right? So they're not yet born. They haven't yet lived out their lives. Uh, they haven't done, they haven't made choices, these, these sort of fatal life-determining uh, life choices. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, his electing call, his regenerating call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, Right? Maybe Paul can say, not on human free, uh, what is it, free will or human, human, uh, the ability to choose, but it depends entirely on God who has mercy. And so notice the logic of Paul's argument, right? Uh, Paul says that before Jacob and Esau was born, and in fact, uh, did God choose Jacob because Jacob is the better person? If you look at Jacob's life, he's a weasel. He's a lying, conniving, manipulating person. And in many ways, he's worse than Esau. I mean, if you had the choice between Jacob and Esau, you want to be friends with Esau because he keeps his word. He's, you know, he's a person of passion, hot temper, but Jacob is a weasel. But God chooses Jacob. Why? To demonstrate that salvation is not by works, but by his electing call. And notice that election is opposed to works. Uh, it's by grace alone. And, you know, a lot of people are discomforted by election, and that's perfectly natural. Because election raises all kinds of questions, problems, and we looked at that some of them yet last week. But, but election is the natural consequence. It's sort of the backdoor consequence of the front door, which is pure grace. If we're saved only by grace, then we have to ask the next follow-up question, well, if we're saved by grace, if it didn't depend on us, then how did it happen? It happened because God, God's electing uh, will. And so election is a natural consequence. And a lot of people don't want to think about election. They don't want to explore, or they don't want to have to grapple with the, the difficulties. And that's fine. I think a lot of Christians are there. You know, They're not willing to accept election, but they love by grace alone. But by grace alone and election, they're connected. right? They're, they're logically linked. So God has the sovereign right to love Jacob by grace, and he has the sovereign right to hate Esau because of his wickedness. Okay? Um, and so before we go on to the objections, and today we're going to address five objections, uh, are there any questions about these two passages, or just about anything in general that we've talked about so far? No? All right, let's move on. So first objection. People's immediate objection, especially when it comes to I love Jacob, I hate Esau, is that's not, that's not fair, that's unfair. Paul, in fact, anticipates this very objection in verse 14. He says, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, absolutely not. Because justice is not that God should love both, but that uh, uh, God has no obligation to love either. Because again, Jacob is a sinner. Esau is a sinner. And so they both deserve hate. hate. They both deserve the wrath of God. And so what is fair is not that both are saved, but that both receive judgment and death. And so God has the absolute right to extend his costly mercy, which cost him his son, to some and not to all. And Paul here quotes 
Exodus 33, which we looked at two weeks ago, Paul writes in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God has that sovereign right. So let me give you an illustration, okay? Suppose that you're moving, and you go onto Craigslist, and you hire five Craigslist uh, muscle guys, and they spend the whole day moving your furniture, and they're sweating, and, and, uh, and at the end of the day, you say, I'm just going to pay two of you. Uh, the other three, I'm, I'm not going to pay. Is that fair? Uh, no. Why isn't it fair, Dorothy? Because you said you were going to pay them all. So yes, but more than just the promise, it's not fair because they worked. They sweat, right? They, they earned their wages. To deny them their wages would be an injustice, right? Okay, now let me give you another illustration. Um, another story. Suppose uh, five guys... Uh, with guns and masks come into your home and they rob you at gunpoint. But uh, what happens is that all five of them are caught by the police. And uh, they're going to go to jail. Uh, But you decide, out of your own mercy, that you're not going to press charges on two of them. And more than that, you're going to liquidate your entire life savings. You're going to send these two troubled young men to college, you're going to set them up with a job, and you're going to completely transform their life and turn their life around. Now, the other three guys say to you, hey, that's not fair. You need to do that for us too. Sell your life savings, send us to college, turn our lives around, give us jobs as well. What would you say? You would say, I don't think you understand your situation, right? I don't have any obligation to do, uh, to do what I'm doing for any of you. You all deserve to go to prison. You all committed the crime. And if I choose to have mercy on some at great cost to me, right, in order to liquidate my life savings, then it's entirely up to me. So which of these two illustrations matches our situation? Are we the five Craigslist movers who earned our wages and therefore God owes us payment, equal payment to all? Or are we the five criminals in whom God has mercy on some but not on all? And we're the five criminals. Right? And so, that's the answer I have uh, to the question or to the objection. It's unfair that God saves only some and not others. Any interaction? But isn't everybody equally sinful? Uh... Is everyone equally sinful? I mean, that doesn't even <coughs> matter, right? I mean, some commit more dastardly e- evil things than others. Uh, if you look at the Bible, there seems to be a leaning towards the more wicked <laughs> that God shows mercy to. But yes, I guess you're right. No, We're yeah, all but from sinful. the world's point of view, then, if, let's say, Hitler became a Christian, then they'll mm-hmm. say, well, isn't, what, isn't that unfair that Hitler was saved and others weren't? Mm-hmm. And there are Hitler-like people in the Bible that are mercifully saved. Um, the most uh, glaring example probably would be Paul, who in some ways we would label him a serial murderer today. So, is it, well, I mean, was that just a comment or was that a question? Oh, no, I'm just saying that that objection can't be exactly answered because of, you can always throw that. Oh, you mean like the kind of argument meaning that... Um, even the most wicked person can be saved? Yeah. Uh, 
keep going. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I think I lost the... No, because if somebody... Um, if there was a Hitler and he was saved, mm -hmm. because all because he trusted Christ, mm -hmm. and then there was this other guy who didn't mass murder everybody. Right. Now, you can say that they're both sinners. Yes. And you can say that... Um, but you can say at a varying degree one person sinned more than the other. But the one... And what you're saying is, at this point, it doesn't matter how much we sin, because it's up to God. Yeah, we're all condemned. We all deserve uh, alienation uh, to be cast out from the presence of God. And so if God, at great cost himself, saves some, who can object? No one can really object. No one can say, I want justice, because justice would be death. No, but wouldn't someone say that if God was going to save Hitler, why doesn't he just save everyone? Right. So, election isn't fair, in this, if, if we define fair by equal treatment for all, but election is just. So, I guess that's my answer. But, so, thank you. That's a good clarifying point. Um, election isn't fair, but it's just. But God has an absolute right not to be equal. Okay. It's kind of, it's kind of uh, odd to think of God as unfair. Yes, that's true. So, we, we, th we think of fairness as justice. Uh, but it depends, I suppose, on what illustration you're using. Craigslist, to be unfair is to be unjust. But if you impoverish yourself to save criminals, then it's not a matter of justice. All right, good. Any, any other follow-up questions? Okay. Um, next objection. What about John 3.16? So John 3.16 says, uh, well, let's have, let's have Jeff read John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, who should, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, you're probably thinking of the King James Version, which I really like. <laughs> Whosoever, right? Um, and so the argument or the objection people have is it specifically says whoever, whosoever believes in Christ. Meaning that salvation is possible for everyone. That there aren't preconditions. It doesn't say only uh, that the elect, when they believe in him, will be saved. It says all, right? Whoever. Uh, it's open to anyone, right? So anyone can be saved is what John 3.16 is saying. And so the doctrine of predestination seems to deny that salvation is available to all. Because what does predestination say? That only some are elect. Some are predestined to salvation. Um, and so this is called the free offer of the gospel. Oh, there are many verses. Yeah, I stand at the door and knock whoever opens Oh, that one. Okay, I'll, I'll address that later. Okay. Um, so, the free, of the free offer of the gospel says that God freely offers salvation to all humanity, that no one is excluded, that there are no preconditions, that there's an openness and there's a broadness to the gospel call, and it's freely available to all. And I threw in another verse, because you see this all over the Bible. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me... All who labor and are heavy laden. I mean, who is weighed down by the cares of life? Everyone, right? Um, and I will give you rest. And so Jesus freely offers salvation to everybody. So doesn't predestination seem to go cross purposes with this free offer? And the answer that uh, 
Reformed theology or uh, predestinarian theology gives is that there ha- there is a difference between the general call and the and an effectual call. Effectual call simply means it's effective. It produces what it wants to produce, right? And so the general call is made to all people, right? Um, It happens through the preaching of the gospel. So every time John 3.16 is read, that's the general call. But along with the general call, God gives us the effectual call to the elect, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes along. He takes out our heart of flesh. He gives us. Uh, uh, he takes out our heart of stone. Gives us a heart of flesh. And without this effectual call, uh, without the act of regeneration, then God's word seems will seem foolish and ridiculous, and there will be resistance. And so, if I can sort of graphically show this, here's the general call. And to some, uh, this would be the effectual call. God uh, uh, sends his spirit, regenerates our hearts, and then we respond with faith. But in other cases, um, there is no spirit. God withholds his, uh, his spirit, and therefore it seems foolish. And therefore... No faith. All right? So where do you see that in the Bible? You see it everywhere. First Corinthians 1. Julie, can I have you read that? Um, for Jews demand the signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Notice the logic of what Paul is saying, right? He says that the gospel ordinarily sounds ridiculous. It sounds foolish. It sounds stupid, right? Um, uh, uh, why, to, to, the, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, it's folly. But what does he say in verse 24? But to those who are called. And here he's talking about the effectual call right, that comes with the Spirit. To those who are called. They see the beauty of Christ, the truth of Christ, the power and the wisdom of God in Christ crucified. Right? Um, you see this two, these two calls. So it has to be, right? We see these two calls distinguished in the Bible all the time. Uh, for example, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Sarah, can I have you read that? For we know, brothers, oh, sorry. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the spirit and the full conviction. Yeah, notice, how do we know that God has chosen the Thessalonian believers? Because the gospel preaching came to them not just in words, and when Paul says not just in words, what is he saying? Not just as a general call, right, the word alone, but the word was accompanied with what? With power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, it it became the effectual call. Now who do we have the power to have the spirit, to have the power, to have the, the conviction of heart. No, we can't do this to ourselves. We're passive recipients. It is God who does this, and therefore predestination holds true, right? And therefore, the doctrine of predestination does not violate the free offer of the gospel. Um, 
Because when Jesus, when in John 3.16 and Matthew 11.28, it's talking about the general call. Now, the follow-up question that people have is, um, why does God even make the general call? Because it seems like a tease, right? Because if you say John 3.16 to somebody, but they're not elect, if they're a reprobate, if God has uh, elected them to, uh, to damnation, then God is, ask, God is offering <coughs> salvation to somebody who has no capability, who in fact will not respond positively. And so it doesn't seem like a genuine offer of salvation, right? God doesn't, like, like I guess people are saying, how can John 3.16 and other verses be true if it's not a true possibility? And the answer to that goes back to lesson uh, number one. If you guys remember lesson number one, right? We made a distinction between natural ability and moral ability. <clears throat> What's the difference between natural ability and moral ability? Or natural, I call it natural will and moral will. Does anyone remember? In class one, two weeks ago. So, Natural ability is your ability to do whatever you want to do, right? So you're not constrained. We're not marionette puppets. We're not robots, right? Moral ability is the ability to do what is right and good and pleasing to God. We have this. We don't have this. And so when God gives us the general call, he doesn't, because we have the natural ability, we have the natural will to obey. There's nothing blocking us, right? In other words, it's not like God says, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and we're coming to God, and God like blocks, it tackles us down. No, but I want to believe in Jesus. No, you cannot. You've been predestined, right? Um, I recently saw this movie with Ethan Hawke called Predestination. Has anyone seen that movie? Right? Every movie that touches on this idea of God's sovereign predestining will always suggests that there's this higher power that's nefarious and that thwarts our natural wills and natural desires. Like we're trying to get there and boom, we're smashing. We're like, oh, how tragic, right? So God never does that. The problem is that we lack the moral ability. So when God offers us Christ, we say how repugnant, how foul. I hate Christ, right? Um, uh, uh, I refuse to believe. And so, um, and so God, therefore, asks, when he offers, when he does a general call, he's asking of us to do what is right and what is good. So there's another example. For example, he asks us not to murder. He asks us not to commit adultery. He asks us not to lie. But we know, because of our sinful fallen nature, we cannot help but to sin. Right? And here we want to define sin in the way Jesus defines it as a matter of the heart. So every one of us as murderers, every one of us are liars, every one of us are thieves, right? Um, so it's impossible for us to obey what he commands in the Ten Commandments, and yet therefore should God say, well, you know what, they're not going to obey even if I say it, so why should I even tease them? Why should I even mess around with them? No, God has a, has a perfect right to ask of us holiness, and even though we cannot do it because we lack the moral ability, we are still obligated to do it. And even the asking of it is the articulation of what is good and right. And therefore, he calls on us to believe Christ, which is good and right. To honor Christ, to praise Christ, even though we lack the ability to do it. 
Is there is there any questions on the response to John three sixteen? Yes. No, that was my brain. Okay. <laughs> Yes, sir. Okay, so what about the passage where the lady approaches Jesus and he says, uh, this table is not for everyone, and she says, but even even some get crumbs from the table? Right, right, right. And so it <coughs> makes it seem like she doesn't have the effectual call, and she's, and she's saying, like, but I, I want that call. You know, that, and, and he says, you know, your faith. And, and, and so what, you know, those kinds of things, I feel like, are examples of Mm-hmm. Whereas opposed to like Paul, who was like, boom, you are going to be my follower and you're going to do great things in my name. I feel like I see examples of God working both ways, both like allowing people to kind of come to him and um, <coughs> and then choosing people for his specific purpose. Yeah. I think the story of Jesus talking to Syrophoenician woman, in which he says, um, what is it? You, you, you're... Gentiles are dogs. Right. You don't have to deserve a place at the table. Is actually the gospel call, because the gospel wounds us before it heals us. So he's giving us, he's giving the Syrophoenician woman the truth, which is that you have, you don't deserve a place at the table. Um, but even in him saying that, he's wounding this woman, and we know from the Bible that you cannot come to him unless he wounds you, right? As Jesus says, right, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So the father's drawing this woman. You know, another example people give is the parable of the prodigal son. So here's the son, and uh, he runs away from the father. He lives this uh, loose, licentious life. Then he comes to his senses, and he comes back to the father. And you see the father's playing a relatively passive role. He's waiting. So you say, aha, see? The father doesn't go and get the son. The son has to come back on his own. That's not true either, because um, even in the telling of the story... Jesus is wooing. And if you look at all the stories that accompany the parable of the prodigal son, right, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, there's always an, an activeness in God, reaching, going, finding. Right? And, so, um, and so it is impossible for us to come without the effectual call. We cannot. Because if we truly take into consideration uh, the doctrine of sin, that we are dead in our sins, that we are slaves to sin, then how can we come? Does that, to some degree, address? <laughs> okay, any other questions? Um, all right, so, next objection. What about faith? Doesn't the doctrine of predestination take away the requirement of faith? Um uh, doesn't it sort of indicate a passivity, right? If we've been predestined to be saved, then I'll be saved, right? Um, that is, that, by the way, that, that view is actually, it's called, there's a term for it, it's called hyper-Calvinism. I actually don't like the word hyper-Calvinism because it suggests some sort of like variation on Calvinism. It's not, it's actually a heresy, um, which says that there is no requirement of faith, that, nor is there a requirement of even evangelism. Whatever will happen, will happen. So everyone can just relax, right? Um, but that is a profound misconception of predestination because predestination doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It doesn't mean absolute passivity. It just means passivity with respect to how is our salvation authored, but we must respond. 
right? There's an activeness in our response. And a lot of times, our response will look greatly ex- like a, a lot of exertion on our part. You know, a lot of people who came to faith, their coming to faith was, is, a, is a long story of exploration, of, of questioning and seeking and longing and, and searching. But then, I think every... I've never met a Christian who said in the end, you know what? How brilliant was I? Right? How insightful was I? Every Christian at the end will look back and say, God was wooing me. God was opening up my heart. By the grace of God, here am I, right? So, so God's election gave us the regeneration of the heart. Yes. But it's our natural ability to make a choice. And so faith is not a gift. No, 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 no. Uh, na- what I mean by natural ability is that we're not robots. Right, but, but you said somebody has to have In order to have faith, you need moral ability. So faith comes out of a moral ability, meaning you see the good and you can do the good. And faith is... Still a gift, then. It is still a gift. Because a moral ability, after the fall, now Adam and Eve, Adam, as as the first parent, without, uncorrupted by sin, was the only human being, other than Christ, who had the moral ability. But after after Adam's fall, we all lost this moral ability. So we're all dead. But but you say, okay, so grace is obviously not, it's a gift, okay? Yes. But faith is a gift. Faith is a gift, too. It's also a gift. So right. what part are we talking about our response? Our so, so even though it's a gift... You have to receive it. You well, have to be willing to receive it. Okay, well, let, well, let me continue on. Okay, I, 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 I know exactly where you're going. Okay, so uh, a big conception, a big misconception about faith is that God takes 99 steps towards us. I, I've given this analogy, right? God takes 99 steps... And we take one step towards him, right? And people say, it's a very modest statement I'm making, right? God is running, 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 coming all the way. But then he basically asks us, hop a little bit towards me. Or just lean, and then I'll, and I'll get you, right? But if we say that, then the 1%, we can claim credit to ourselves. We can say, that's me. That's to my credit. And then 1% diminishment to the glory of God, to the praise of God. Because we can praise ourselves. And that cannot be. This scheme is wrong. It is 100% by the grace of God, by His mercies. But it is also 100% in the sense that we must respond. There, there cannot be a passivity. So, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. So he mentions faith, right? This is not your own doing, even though faith is your own doing, right? Are you doing something in faith? Of course. But who is the author of your faith? Who is the, the, the genesis? Where is the source of your faith? This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith is not our one meritorious work. God doesn't say, you know what, Adam and Eve, I demand obedience. Okay, you failed. All right, I'm going to set the barrier lower. Now, the only one work that I ask of you is now faith. Nobody says that explicitly, but almost conceptually, like that's how people articulate the gospel. That faith is our one work. But faith is not a work either. The, the, the best understanding of faith is faith is the empty hand. I don't know why I'm even trying to draw the empty hand. I, I'm such a hard <laughs> artist, right? But um, faith is the empty hand. Now, think about a beggar. When a beggar has an empty hand, do you say to the beggar, good job, beggar. That's a lot of work you're doing. No, what does an empty hand signify? 
The beggar saying, I have nothing. Can you please help me? Can I receive a gift? So the empty hand receives the gift. Faith is the receptacle by which you receive what God has done. It is not you, uh, it is not a work on your part. It's not a meritorious work on your part. Uh, does that help, Winnie? Let me follow up with Winnie. I mean, because you were asking before. Or have, have I completely lost you? <laughs> no, it's just That's a tactic like a of mine. Play, it just seems like a play with words because I see why you try to avoid the 99 steps in one step because mm-hmm. then people can boast about that one step. Yes. But to play with word, I feel like it's that you're calling, you're calling our willingness to receive this not a faith. Faith is another separate entity. No, no, no. Our willingness to receive it is faith. But our willingness to receive it, think about the very right, vehicle of it is emptiness. Right, but open the hand, empty hand? It's a willingness of faith. It's, and it's a willingness to respond. It's his emptiness. So faith is, is our acknowledgement. We are empty. Right. We have nothing. We are beggars. Right. Now, now, man in his natural state thinks there's somebody. There are beggars walking around thinking... I'm rich because we're dead in our sins, right? We're corrupt. Sin blinds us, right? I mean, think about, think about uh, the miracles of Jesus. Jesus constantly heals the blind. It's a profound metaphor. Why? Because we're blind, spiritually blind, right? And so the only way we can see Christ is if he opens our eyes first. Like, like the passage in Acts, right? God opened the eyes of Lydia's heart. Then Lydia can see and then Lydia responds in faith, and she receives the gospel. Therefore, faith is a gift, because faith comes out of a change the heart. And only God can change the heart. And therefore, the genesis of our faith is from God. No one can say, in the end, I believe, because I was a little bit smarter. I was a little bit more insightful. Right? So when you say when you say that our faith is a response to God changing our hearts, yes. it makes it seem like someone's taking that one step. But in a way, it's really, from the other things you're saying, it seems more like it's it's the logical uh, result of God changing our hearts. You can't not have faith if God changed your heart. That's right. Right? So it's not really our response. It's just what's happening because the heart has been changed. Um, no, because, fa- see, when God gives us the moral ability then our moral ability and our natural ability align. Right? So then we see what is good and right. We see Christ as true, as king, as savior, and then we respond as we naturally would. We say, Savior, Lord, and we give our lives to him. That's us doing it. It's not God, you know, moving your arm, accepting the gospel. Right, God awakens your heart, so now you do it of your own natural will. But how did you even get to that point? Because God did something to your heart. And this goes back to what we talked about in our first class, like having the stake before us and the seeing how whatever. Feces. Feces, thank you. So like we literally, we cannot choose the feces because our eyes have been opened. And what helps me in this is thinking like... We cannot choose the stake, but yeah. Well, no, but after our eyes have been open. Oh, yeah, after our eyes are open, yeah. We can't choose it. We can't choose it, yeah. And, and I think about it in my life, like, 
could I now, yeah. my eyes have been opened, can I reject him? And I can't. I we can't, see yeah. him in his glory. That's right. And so, in a, in a sense, it's not my choice. Like we can, Well, it is my choice, but it aligns, because it aligns with my natural That's ability, right. I'm going to choose. I think a really good take. example is uh, for married couples when you love your, fall in love with their spouse. Um, are you compelled to love your spouse? Is somebody saying, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going I'm 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 to wrestle you down. Love your spouse, even though she's hideous. Love her. No, no one says that. Everyone thinks, wow, I'm so lucky. I love her. I love him, right? But how did that happen? I mean, uh, uh, in many cases, everyone has stories, right? That you, you, you see your spouse as beautiful and, and, uh, and charming and wonderful. But nobody else thinks that, right? Or, you know, less people than, 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 than everybody, right? Because you have eyes for your spouse. Right, so in a sense, are you being compelled? Well, yes and no. You cannot help but to love, but that's because you have eyes. Your heart has been awakened. You see something admirable, beautiful, uh, in your loved one. I don't know if that makes sense. You have to work at that love every day to sustain. That's true. That's true. That's true. So our faith has to be continually um, awakened, vivified, fired up. So. We're talking about sanctification. Sanctification as absolutely our work, right? But regeneration is not our work. The, 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 even the beginning of the journey has to be solely an act, a work of God. But once God has woken us up, right, then it's our responsibility. So we can live a weak, cowardly um, Christian life, or we can live a life that depends solely on, on Christ, and we grow deeper and deeper in maturity, that's on us. So we have a choice. How are we going to live our Christian life? But the beginning of a Christian life, that's not on us. So once God has changed our hearts, yes. and we see that the, the plate, the undesirable plate is undesirable, yes. why do we keep going back to it? Because of the brokenness of our hearts, right? So It seems God, like the change isn't complete yet. That's right. So it's already, but not yet. We're awakened, but there's, I mean, we're, we're made alive, but there is um, a deep corruption still soaked into our being and a wicked bent that brings us back again. And I, so I always think of the Christian life as this downward escalator. We're on a down escalator because our sinful nature is always dragging us away from Christ. So you have to constantly walk up against the escalator. You have to constantly uh, attend to your heart in devotion and prayer and Christian community. Or else you will fall away. Now the question then becomes, can, can believers fall away? And the answer I always give is, well, it's always warned against that you that don't fall away because in the end, um, you can be, you, you can, your faith can, can simulate true faith, but you don't really believe. And so you must always strive or else you will fall away in the sense that people walk away from the church and apostatize. That's a whole nother discussion. I purposely left it out of my three-week session because that's a whole class by itself. I'm fatigued. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I would just add that sanctification is both 100% us and 100% God in yes. the sense that he keeps us. Otherwise, if we think that sanctification is just us, then it's, it becomes a works. Okay, so, so, so it's from beginning to end. It's, it's all God. But, so that talks about the idea of uh, God's uh, sovereignty versus human responsibility, which is a huge, huge... <laughs> yeah, we talked about that last week. Okay. Yeah, so it's simultaneously true. So it's a paradox. Right? Even yeah, our sanctification paradox. is a paradox. Yeah. All right. Let, let me go on. 
because um, I want to get to the. So I'm probably not going to get to the. Uh, what about uh, evangelism? Although, ooh, I have a really good illustration about that one. All right, I'm just driven by illustrations. All right, um, objection. Right. Uh, next objection isn't predestination God randomly choosing who to save, like darts on a board. Isn't arbitrary who is saved and who is not. And uh, a lot of people say, well, there has to be a reason why God chose me and not other people. And so it must be in response to God seeing in the future my future faith, right? That God knew that I was going to believe, or that maybe I just showed a slight inclination. I just leaned a little bit towards him. Right? Everyone was leaning against him, just a little bit, and then God like came to my rescue. And the answer, of course, that it has nothing to do with your merits or God seeing who, that we would believe. God, and the answer is, why does God choose us? Why did God elect us and not others? And the answer is God loves us because he loves us. Right? God just loves us. And in the end, that's the love that we really want and need because there's nothing more secure and more assuring than that kind of love. And here's the illustration I, I want to give. Right? What if your spouse says to you, why of all the people out there do you love me? Why did you choose me? Now that's a very dicey question. right? So if you answer, if you say, I love you because you're the prettiest. I love you because you're the most athletic or you're the wealthiest. Is your spouse going to be pleased with that answer? No, your spouse will hate that answer. Why does that answer discomfort us? Because that kind of love can be lost. Because you cannot be the prettiest. You cannot be the most athletic. You can lose your, your wealth, right? So what's the right answer? The right answer is, I love you because I love you. I love you simply because I do. And so true unconditional love has its own rationale. And so God has a reason why he chose you. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. God's not throwing a dart on the, boat, on the board. He especially chose you. He especially chose you, but not because of your merits, but because it has everything to do with his love. Does that make sense? To some degree, it's a little bit of a paradox. Let me give you, uh, let me follow along with another line of, of reasoning. See, if you say the ultimate reason why I'm saved is, is because I believe, not because God ultimately chose me, then the problem with that is you, is, and you can follow this line of, of, of logic. Why do you believe and not other people believe? Well, I believe because I saw my sin and I repented. Well, why, do you, why did you repent and not other people repent? Why did you see your sin and other people didn't see your sin? Well, because I humbled myself or I was seeking him. Well, why did you seek him and not other people seek him? See, do you see where this is going? In the end... You have to basically say then, if faith is the reason why you believe, I mean, I mean if, uh, if, if faith is, the genesis of faith is, comes from you, then ultimately there was something more special and unique about you, and therefore that's what sets you apart, and, th- and therefore you're a teensy bit better than others who don't believe, but predestination says, very definitively, it has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with your assets or your abilities, you were just as blind and dumb as the next person. Okay? But God chose you without condition, by sheer grace. It was completely undeserved. And when you understand it, it should humble you to the dust. It should destroy all pride. Because no one can say, you cannot, and therefore, as a believer, you should have compassion on non-believers. And if I, as a mature believer, you should have compassion on weak believers. Because it's by grace. It's, by, it's a gift. You can never um, have an arrogant attitude towards other people and it should fill you with a profound sense of wonder. And this is why I said, why do we even talk about predestination? Because it is upsetting to a lot of people. People don't like it because ultimately it connects to grace. Predestination tells us again and again and again, even though we dislike the, those philosophical questions about free will, it goes to grace. 
It's it's the flip it's the flip side of grace. Last question: uh, What about evangelism? If people are predestined, why should I evangelize? Evangelize. What's my incentive to evangelize? And I have three answers to that, and I'll be very quick. The first one is an illustration. What if Christina said to me one night, "Honey, can you cook dinner for me?" Now, in our household, Christina is a far better cook, so she does the cooking. I don't do the cooking, for the most part. Uh, but Christina says to me one night, "Honey, I'm so tired tonight." Uh, I'm exhausted. Can you please do me this favor and cook dinner for me? And in fact, I made it really easy for you. I laid out all the ingredients. I printed out the instructions. All you need to do is follow the instructions and, and cook the dinner. And don't worry if you mess up. Because if you mess up, then I will help you. I will, I, will, I will cook the dinner. I will be your backup. I'll be your safe dinner. And I'll cook the dinner for you in case you don't know what you're doing. What if I were to say to her in response, let me get this straight. Whether I cook dinner or not, it's going to get done. What's my incentive? Why should I even do it? And what should Christina say to me in response? She should say, <laughs> she should say, yes, you're right. Whether you cook dinner or not, it'll get done. But that's not your only incentive. Your incentive is you should cook dinner because you love me, because you care for me, and I'm asking you to do it. Why should we evangelize? Not only because if we don't evangelize, people won't be saved. That's not, that, that's not our driving motivation. But because we love God, we want to obey Him. Okay? Uh, two more answers. Uh, predestination does not eliminate the means. So a lot of people say, if I'm predestined to pick up this pen, then I don't need to do anything. The pen sh- my hand should just automatically move there. That's simply not true. Um, uh, a lot of people say, if I'm predestined to get an A on the test, I don't have to study for the test. No. If you don't study for the test, that just shows you're predestined to fail the test. Okay? <laughs> Predestination does not uh, exclude the means. It includes the means. And so God not only predestines some to be saved, God also predestines the means by which you're saved, which is that someone will tell you the gospel, that someone will come along and evangelize. That's what we see in Romans 10. I'm not going to read it to you, but basically Paul says, how can they believe unless somebody is sent to them? Okay, but why do I pray that God will change this person's heart? That's a good, that's a good question. That's God decided who Yeah, so that leads me to my third point. Predestination doesn't give us no incentive. It gives us hope. Because here's the reason why. If you, if you have somebody you love, and they don't believe the gospel, and you say it's hopeless, this person hates the gospel, that no matter what I say, no matter what I do, I can't change them. That's right. That's why you pray. Because ultimately it depends on God. Why do you pray? If, if ultimately predestination is not true, and it ultimately depends on on people, then you, you, would, you would set aside prayer because that's a waste of time. And you would focus on manipulation. You would focus on making the decision. You would focus on the argumentation. But you don't. You spend a lot of time on prayer. Why? Because you're asking God to do this. You're saying, God, change their heart. God, regenerate them. I can't do it. They can't do it naturally of their own. Open their heart. That's why we pray. Right? So, and because the fact that we don't know who gets told, so you still pray. That's why... That's true, and also, remember, God predestines not only the ends, but also the means. And how are people saved? They're saved through prayer. So when you pray for somebody, that could very well be the means by which that person is rescued in Christ. So pray. Pray for your loved ones. If you don't pray, that could very well be a sign that they're not predestined. It's like studying, right? If I don't study for an exam, I I, I said it very crassly, okay? But basically, if you don't study for an exam, that's how you know you're going to fail the test. It's not a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Studying is the prayer. 
That's right. But some are so smart that they don't need to study. They still pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I heard a sermon once where um, someone was asking a pastor, why don't, like, uh, it's not fair that God would choose, like, what about the people in Africa who don't have a chance to hear the gospel? Yeah. And then the pastor asked this guy, well, do you really care about the salvation of these people? And this wasn't a Christian. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, well, yeah, I care about what happens to them. Then the pastor told him, well, God has put this on your heart to preach to the Africans. So therefore, you are the means by which God's going to reach these people. Sure. And I think this strikes at the heart of the fairness or unfairness issue, which is that we think, well, it's like, uh, like there are so many philosophical things that play into this discussion. But in the end, it's people's souls. And it's also... Um, this this gives us the hope that yes, um, God has said like in Revelation, people of all tribes and tongues and nations, and um, there are tribes that are unreached. And God says, I've said in my in my word that these people will be on my throne. Therefore, whoever goes, like whatever costs you, the ends is off. foreordained. Does that mean the means is immaterial or unnecessary? Absolutely not. God has also foreordained the means, yeah. and therefore we ought to go. So if people care about the people that they think are going to hell, well, that's God putting it on your heart to do something about it. You should cook, not just because the meal will get done, but because you love your spouse. Any questions? And that's being our brother's keeper, right? That's right. Any other questions? I think I have more of a statement. Yes. Um, This is kind of hard to, and well, it makes you think, well, God is, I don't know, it's just, it seems inconsistent with his character mm-hmm. um, at the surface level. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the Old Testament, we know like he chose the people, mm-hmm. and they had no merit, and mm-hmm. he did it for his glory and for himself. And so, I don't know, I think that's just, you can translate that over to the new. I mean, it's the same, the same thing happening. All yeah. again. In fact, Choosing. in some ways you could say Israel had a lot of demerits. They were small, yeah. they were just stiff-necked people, and also in First Corinthians, Paul echoes that exact same language that many of you were smart and significant and great, you were you were you 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 were the worst of sinners, but God chose you for that reason that His grace might be magnified. See, God has two incentives, two goals: to save the people He loves, but not that's just not the only goal, but for His glory. And they're not disconnected; they're related. And so He saves you that He might magnify His glory. And this is why He predestines, so that you cannot say, "God, there's a little bit, a little bit to me." Let me pray and then we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for these three weeks. And Lord, certainly there will still be questions. um, And we give those questions to you. And we know that you would not have put this doctrine in the Bible if you did not want us to benefit from it. And, And if there was not rich fruit and nourishment from it, help us to know what is that nourishment, which is that we are saved by grace alone and not of our own works. Help us to rejoice in that. Even if we cannot ultimately agree on the particulars of the election, help us to know that we are saved by grace alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much for the class. Next class, as I said, we're going to...